Please read with me Acts 2, verses 37 through 44. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm thankful, glad that you're here as we're continuing uh, our series, four weeks that we're calling Display, how the local church showcases the glories of Christ. And we understand and we believe that local churches are at their best whenever they're adhering to the word of God, uh, the word of God informing how it is that they're going about ministry and life together, we believe that as churches do that, then they have the opportunity to most compellingly display the majesty and the glories and the renown and the worth of God himself. And so like prongs that display the beauty of a diamond, so too are local churches that display the unparalleled, matchless nature of our good Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been entrusted to do. And contrary to popular belief, the way in which a church best showcases the glory of Christ is by simply committing themselves to what many have called throughout church history the ordinary means of grace. And contrary, I've said contrary multiple times already, contrary to the boring sounding title given those ordinary means of grace, they really are exciting and life-giving. The ordinary means of grace are uh, those things which God has appointed for our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so we think about ordinary means of grace. He's revealed himself in and through his word so we can know God as we open his word and we sit under the preaching of his word and we can know God and communicate with God in and through prayer we can know God through the imparting of his Holy Spirit. And we can know God and live together through the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the ordinary means of grace of accountability and community within a local church. And so in our series, this is what we've been considering. We're considering four ways in which the local church can showcase the renown and the worth of Christ. 
We've said those four things that we're looking at is how the church gathers, the church in baptism, the church in the Lord's Supper, and then lastly, the church covenanting together. And so this morning, we'll consider how baptism properly administered magnifies the wonder and the renown and the worth of Christ. And maybe the fundamental kind of foundational question that's staring at you this morning, and perhaps even that you're thinking this morning, is we're thinking about showcasing the glories of Christ. That sounds so grander. And yet we think, baptism. It seems so ordinary. So how does baptism then showcase the glories of Christ? Well, what's the big deal with baptism? Does it really matter? In most gatherings with pastors that I have had the privilege of sitting in over the last 12 years of ministry, I have found that consistently pastors say the most common issue that I have with people coming in, thinking about the church, becoming members of the church, conversations around baptism. I found that to be true. And so with such differences of opinion, with such a variety of experiences that exist among Christians, why would we not just accommodate all preferences to highlight unity? Because unity then would showcase the glory of Christ. Well, if you read 1 Corinthians, unity does showcase the glory of Christ. And one of the ways in which unity showcases the glory of Christ is that we're unified about what we believe the Bible teaches. And so unity doesn't come at the expense of doctrine. Unity and doctrine go hand in hand. And so we're a Baptist church. And although we're a Baptist church, our denomination doesn't determine our practice of baptism. It doesn't determine uh, other practices. Rather, our convictions about Scripture are set, they're informed, and that leads us then as a church to cooperate and to affiliate with denominations. And so I think it's just helpful to realize we do what we do not because a denomination says this is what you're supposed to do. We do what we do because we understand the Scripture to teach in accordance with the way in which a particular denomination understands the Bible to teach. And so... Rightly understanding and practicing baptism as a local church will speak something to the world about our God. And this is what I'm also aware of. I'm thankful for Lindsay's testimony. I'm thankful for the opportunity that uh, we had personally, that I had personally, we had as elders in a church to be able to walk alongside her. And this is what I know. I know that when it comes to this issue, uh, this can be an issue of uh, contention. It can be an issue of uh, in which different sides hold arrogant, uh, hold their positions arrogantly. And I think I, I hope that if you're here and you're not persuaded that the Bible teaches baptism the way that we're persuaded, I hope um, that you don't feel put off by any hint of arrogance for the position that we hold. Uh, we hold this position in great humility. Uh, believing that it is the authority of the Word of God on which we stand. And so uh, I am thankful for many Christian friends that I have who disagree with my position on baptism and yet who I can still cooperate with for purposes of unity around the gospel. Uh, 
And so while we wouldn't be members in one another's churches, we do have unity around the gospel. And for that, I'm thankful. And so I hope that that's the tenor of this church's understanding of this doctrine and that we would be winsome and loving and gracious as we seek to wield it with those who disagree. And so I do thank God for that. And I believe that thanking God at the beginning of this sermon is something that we should do for ordinary means of grace. And then asking God for help, I think, would be appropriate. So let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we are known by you. And so thank you for your word, for the opportunity to speak with you in prayer, and for the ordinances that you've given, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the accountability and the community of a local church family. Thank you for those ordinary means of grace. And though they're regular and ordinary, I pray that we would not lose sight of how effective and just special they are. And so thank you for these good gifts. And so as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would grant a lot of clarity, primarily through me. And I pray that you would grant clarity to those who hear. And I pray that we would hear and behold good things from your word. We would see the glory of Christ in and through your word. And so meet us. I'm well aware this morning of my deficiencies. And so I pray that you would uh, do a greater work. And I pray this for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, last week we surveyed God's Word to just get an understanding of why it is that the church gathers. God's people has always, they, they've always been a people that would gather together. We could say that they've always been a gathering people. And essential to what it means to be the church is to regularly gather together for a specific purpose. That purpose is responding to the worth of Christ. We could say it this way, that we, the local church, gathers together to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to protect the gospel, and to promote the gospel. And so, so essential to what it means to be the church is to regularly gather together for those purposes. But the question is, how do we know that those who are gathering really do belong to Christ? Uh, what's the identification? Is it just coming together? Do we get everyone in the room and everyone in the room then is identifying with Christ? I mean, is there a way to know who is of the world and who is a part of the church? Well, the Bible says there is. And that marking out from the, the world in the church, that distinction is made clear, first and foremost, through baptism. And so if we were to pick up on the illustration that we used last week about the, the football player who never gathers together with the team for the game, at some point we begin to question whether or not he's on the team. If he's unwilling to gather to play, then he may be a fan, right? Fans gather, but they don't play. 
And so what is it, the kind of unique picking up on that? How is it that those who are on the team are identified as part of the team? It's not just showing up for the team meeting. No, it's being issued by the team a jersey. And a team-issued jersey is the official way that you would identify a player on the team. So too with baptism. The public identification with, putting on the jersey so as to show I am not any longer affiliated with the world, but I belong to Christ and to his church. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Acts chapter 2, the passage that we heard read this morning, beginning in verse 37. And as we jump into Acts chapter 2, it may be helpful just to define the term. And we could talk all about baptism and then really uh, get to the end and never really have defined it. And I believe a helpful definition is stated this way, that baptism is the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing underwater. And so it's the church's act of affirming and portraying that this professing Christian belongs to Christ. And if baptism has a church responsibility and act, it also has a believer's responsibility and act. So while it's the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing underwater, it's also the believer's act of committing oneself to Christ and to his people. Baptism is how the one is united to the many, his church. And baptism is also how the one is marked off from the world. So probably the most clunky definition I could have given. It's the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing underwater, and it's a believer's act of committing oneself to Christ and to the church, uniting that believer to the church and marking that believer off from the world. And so the question then is not, is that definition good? The question is, Does that definition hold up under the light of the scriptures? I believe it does. In Acts chapter 2, I believe this is what we find. And so if you're looking for Acts, feel free to use the table of contents. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. 2, the chapter number will be the large number. The smaller numbers, 37 through 41, will be the verses. I believe that working through this passage will be able to serve as a guide to us that we can answer several common questions about baptism to hopefully then give us an understanding of just how when we commit ourselves to obeying the Lord as it pertains to baptism, we really do showcase the worth and the glory of Christ. Acts chapter 1 begins, the apostles are spending time with the resurrected Christ until he ascends. Jesus ascends after 40 days. And the gathering of this band of followers is praying. They're gathering together. They're praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 recounts how the Holy Spirit was poured out on this group. It was poured out in miraculous ways. 
And then we get in Acts chapter 2 a little bit of just the reaction of the religious leaders about this. And so it's in the, the sort of the, the awe and wonder of what has just happened, mixed with the skepticism of the religious leaders trying to make, make clear as to what's happening, that Peter stands up and Peter preaches the first sermon on this side of the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And what this sermon does is really explains how Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he's the only Savior and Lord. He explained that the death of Christ came according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet it was also carried out by the sinful impulses of the audience that was even listening to this sermon on this day. And while these sinful men intended to rid themselves of Christ, God intended to put an end to the agony of death by raising Jesus from the dead. And that's what Peter preaches. And he closes the sermon and he sums up the accountability that all of them had before the Lord. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And it's this Jesus whom you crucified. And everything else that we're going to see this morning hinges on the response to that message. Everything. And I'm aware that in our gathering this morning, there are those who have yet to be baptized. And I believe that what the text is doing, before we jump into the part about baptism, I believe that what's happening up until then is very important for us. A response of faith comes before any decision that needs to be made about whether or not you need to be baptized. And so, if I could say it another way, if you're not a Christian this morning, hearing a sermon on baptism, you may be inclined to think, I need to be baptized. And I just want you to know that that's not the order that the Bible puts forth. That there's, the Bible makes clear that what comes before the act of baptism is the act of surrender. It's the act of bowing your knee in submission to who God is and what it is that he's done in and through Jesus Christ. And so more foundational than have you been baptized is do you believe what Peter preached on that day to be true today? Do you believe that? What Peter preaches to this crowd is the most relevant message for you and I as well. And to understand the message of Christianity, one must understand the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. That's what Peter kind of, his whole message builds up to the fact that this one who was promised, this one who has come, this one who is unique, who's God, who's the beloved of heaven, has come. And he endured a cross, not for sins that he committed, but as a substitute for the sins of those who would trust in him. I mean, what we learn about the cross is that it's the place where God's law is satisfied. I mean, the Bible makes clear from the very beginning when there is 
sacrifices made for the forgiveness of sins. There is the shedding of blood that is required for there to be atonement. And God's people all throughout history have just been making atonement, making atonement, making atonement, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And God in great mercy and grace would send the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ. And Christ would live the life that was perfect. And he would die the death that was a sacrifice. Just like the crowds on this day, every one of us in this room, we're guilty before God because of our sin. And just like the crowds on that day, they were in need of being cut to the heart. They needed to have their sin exposed. They needed to to be able to understand that they were dead in their sins and they were guilty before a holy God. You see, before you and I can see the cross as something that has been done for us, we must understand that the cross is something that has been done by us. It wasn't just the plans of the people in Jesus' day that led him to the cross. It was his love. And it was my sin. And it was your sin. And the same heart posture that the crowd had in crucifying Jesus is the same heart posture that you and I have when we do not surrender our lives to him. And so while knowledge is vital, it's not sufficient to know that we have a sin problem that doesn't bring atonement and forgiveness of sin. But what does is faith in the solution. And this is the good news of the Christian faith. It's the good news of Peter's sermon, is that Jesus Christ came to take the curse that sinners deserved. That Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross, shielded his people from the wrath of God. Jesus took it all. And in that, the law is perfectly upheld. But it's not just that the law is satisfied at the cross, but the love of God is displayed and demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, unable to come to him, unable to please him, Christ died for for us. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And that was the message that was preached. And that brings us then to our text. And the question then is, what can alleviate the cut to the heart which the truth of Jesus Administers. And that's what we see in verse 37. When they heard the sermon, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? There was a desperation in realizing the weight of their guilt. It wasn't just knowledge, okay, yeah, I've got a problem, I'm a sinner. But no, it was like, it is my sin. I understand it's my sin against the holy God. And I understand that there is wrath that's due me. The law and the gospel proclaimed by Peter, applied by the Spirit, did the work necessary to waken these consciences for response. And so the question is, how then do they respond? What is the balm that's needed to soothe the wound? Well, verse 38 tells us, Peter said to them, repent 
and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. That's the appropriate response. When you're cut to the heart and you see your need for a Savior, you understand your sin, and you realize that there's nothing in your good works and your efforts that could ever get you right before a holy God. You repent. You turn. You give up living life calling the shots. That's what got you and I into the predicament in the first place. It's this urgent action on the part of the hearer to respond. They saw the provision of God through Christ for forgiveness. It wasn't just they were aware of their sin, but they saw the solution. And they wanted to throw themselves on the solution. Repentance has two sides to it. We normally only think of repentance as turning from. It is turning from sin, but it is a turning to God. F.F. Bruce says that repentance involves turning with contrition from sin, brokenhearted. I turn from my sin. I hate my sin, and yet I turn to God. When Paul's talking about how, how it was... Uh, when he went to Ephesus and he was preaching and laboring there in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, this is how he says, this is what I preached, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from sin and selfishness and rebellion, detesting your sin because of the realization that it is offensive before God. But you don't merely just turn away from your sin and then you're kind of now aimless. No, you turn away from your sin and you turn and lay hold of God. That's repentance. You turn to receive by faith his provision for repentant sinners. And so repentance and faith go together. Intellectually, the sinner understands something of his guilt before God. Emotionally, he feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit about the ways in which he has offended and sinned against God. And that leads to godly sorrow. And then volitionally, he turns away from sin with a new disposition to trust and obey and to honor and follow after Christ. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you. Trust Christ by turning from your sin. Turn to God in faith. We just sang about a fountain being opened and it's open because of the work of Christ and it's open to you today and don't make the deadly mistake of assuming that when you get older you can turn to it then that day may never come see your need for a savior see God's gracious provision in Jesus and turn from your sin and lay hold of him by faith and that's what Peter says, repent. And then he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. I love it. It's the passive voice. It indicates that this isn't something that someone does to themselves. Repent is not in the passive voice. It's something that it's a response, an active response. Be baptized is something that, does, uh, that, you, that one has done to them. 
We'll see in a moment who it is that administers baptism. It's important to the nature of baptism, but more literally, it implies, let each one of you that has repented submit to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what we find in this case and in every other documented case in the New Testament. Baptism follows repentance and faith. I mean, every documented case, identifying with Christ and his people and the gospel message through baptism, that always happens after repentance and faith. It's an outward, visible, public response to what one has done inwardly in responding to the gospel. Well, so maybe a question that you're asking is then, well, what mode? If it's repent and be baptized, then what does be baptized? What mode? And Lindsay shared a little bit of her testimony. We saw last week in understanding the meaning of the word ecclesia, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to use the words that they did to teach the doctrines that they do. And so he didn't didn't say crowd, he didn't say people. Ecclesia is the assembly, the coming together. In the same way, the word used for baptize, it means to immerse, to completely submerge. There are other words for pouring or sprinkling that simply aren't used in any biblical instance of believer's water baptism. It's just not there. Most scholars would affirm that the early church practiced baptism by immersion, and it was only later that other modes were introduced. And even thinking about what mode is best, other passages, when read most naturally, imply and necessitate. Multiple times we see going down into the water, coming up out of the water, Acts chapter 8. Thinking even about the baptism that John was doing in John chapter 3, verse 23. The reason they, did bapt- they baptized here is because there was, the water was plentiful. So just a natural reading of the text implies that we don't just need a little bit of water for another mode. We need a body of water for this particular mode. And I think immersion best fits with the purpose and the function that the ordinances are given to the church. Christ has given two ordinances to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as churches faithfully administer and practice those ordinances, I believe churches faithfully portray the gospel. It it, it gives the gospel message some some flesh, not flesh, but it just at least gives it a form. We're able to see broken bodies shed blood. We understand that. We're able to see death to self, raised to newness of life. Understand immersion to most clearly put on display the fullness of the gospel message. And so each of these realities lead us as a church to say that the authority of God's word rests on this mode. And while I understand the desire to be sympathetic, and just as a pastor, it would be a lot easier just to say, sure, it really... We're not convinced that's what we see in Scripture, but come on in anyway. At the end of the day, I just don't believe that I have that authority to make a concession 
where I don't see scriptures making concessions. It would be easier pastorally, but convictionally, the only authority I have, the only authority this church has, is the authority that comes as we stand rightly upon the word of God. And that's where we rest. And so maybe the question then is, well, what's the meaning of baptism? Well, Peter continues in his answer. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is a word picture that essentially is describing identification with Jesus. Identification into his name. It's a uniting with him. We see this all throughout Acts. Acts chapter 8, 15 and 16. Acts chapter 10, verse 48. Acts chapter 19, 4 and 5. Each of these instances, there's this call to identify yourself with Christ. That's the, that's the meaning of baptism. Baptism is this public identification with Christ. It's the picture of how our lives are united with Christ. And it, so it doesn't make any sense to have someone who would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I do not want to be identified with him. I believe in Jesus, but I don't want my life to be united with his. No, believing in Jesus means I do want to be identified with him and I need my life to be identified with his. Well, then how is that portrayed? The God-given means is through this act, this visible act of baptism. That's why when you come to the New Testament, you walk through the book of Acts, you walk through the letters in the New Testament, you walk through the epistles, those letters that are written to pastors and church leaders, and what, what, do, you, what do you see? The New Testament doesn't have a category of unbaptized believers. Those that are following Christ that have yet to, are unwilling to, or are not thinking about identifying with him publicly. It's just, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense in the scriptures. It's, it's almost as if it's an oxymoron, unbaptized believer in the New Testament. That's the picture that the New Testament gives us over and over and over again. I mean, baptism expresses our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He goes on the next two verses to talk about how old self has died, new, alive to Christ. In the wider context of Romans, I think it would be a mistake to say that water baptism is the means of being united to Christ. It's not what Romans 6 is saying. Romans 6 is not saying, be baptized in water in order to be united with Christ. It says, be baptized in water so as to portray, to display, to showcase the glories of what it means to be united with Christ. And so if it's not water baptism that unites, what is it? Romans is clear. I mean, there's, there's 
Every chapter, Romans is clear, faith. Faith is how one is united with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 is clear, faith. It's by grace through faith that we're made right with God. And we display our faith. We show this faith. We put the jersey on to say, I have this faith. Signifying our faith, symbolizing our faith with the act of baptism. And so faith is what unites us to Christ. And baptism is what symbolizes that union. I mean, Paul writes again, same thing, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith. You see it? The identification doesn't come through baptism, it's through faith. And baptism then is the picture, it's the display, it's the marketing, it's the going public of that faith. Just yesterday here, we saw Danny and Reagan get married And an analogy would be that whenever Danny and Reagan put on the rings, putting on the rings didn't make them married. It signified. It was a symbol. It expresses publicly the fact that they are now in covenant with one another. So it is with faith and baptism. Baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death of Jesus, the Son of God, in our place for our sins and from his triumph over death and the resurrection. So baptism has meaning and it's important because of what it displays and it signifies. It's not the way in which we're made right with God. The genuineness of your faith is stamped publicly through baptism. As Don Whitney would say in his book, baptism is the Christ-ordained way of openly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. It marks you out from among the world that you belong to him. And so the question then would be, so is Peter saying that baptism is necessary to be saved? He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, if we only read this verse, apart from all other verses, I understand how one could read this. To see that if you're not baptized, then you don't have forgiveness of sin. He'll go on to say, and receive the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, if all we have is one verse, I understand how you could read this and, and, and think like the church of Christ thinks, that you have to have baptism in order to be a Christian. But the good news for you and I is we're not just given one verse. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And the disputed word here is the word for be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Does it mean for? Or does it mean, it's the word ace, it's, it has E-I-S, it has uh, kind of, it can go two ways, either for, causal, or on the basis of. And this is what's interesting. No other passage in the book of Acts connects forgiveness of sin to baptism. Repentance and faith 
is always, almost always linked with forgiveness of sin. Baptism, then, is the expression of that. Well, so then who should be baptized? I mean, it says, we're walking through this Peter's response, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, verse 39, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so the question then is, who should be baptized? Well, we've seen the precedent thus far that those who repent and believe, verse 41 will even come back to say, and those who received were baptized. So there is this idea of, of those who have repented, those who have received this word by repenting and believing, they are to be baptized. Well, the question is, what about infants? I mean, it says it's for you and your children. But it doesn't just say it's for you and your children. It says it's for you and your children and for all who are far off. Our understanding of the New Testament is that the meaning of baptism includes the fact that it's an expression of faith of the one being baptized. And this is why here at Covenant Life, we don't baptize infants. Because infants can't express their faith in the finished work of Jesus the Christ. Infants aren't capable of repentance and faith at one level. And on the other hand, the notion that a person should or could inherit the blessings of a Christian or considered to be Christian by virtue of parents' faith seems to be contrary to the New Testament teaching. And I believe the most credible and respectable defense of infant baptism says that just as in Israel, circumcision was given to eight-day-old infants, so too in the church, baptism should be given to infants of Christian parents. And so the correspondence is what circumcision was to the Old Testament, baptism is to the New Testament. Circumcision was given to males eight days old, and so now it should be extended, baptism should be extended to children of believing parents. And I want to, I want to affirm, I believe that there is a correspondence between circumcision as the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel and baptism as the sign of the new covenant. We believe, namely, that just as circumcision was administered to all the physical sons of Abraham, so baptism should be administered to all the spiritual sons of Abraham. And you say, well, who are the spiritual sons of Abraham? I believe Paul answers this multiple places. Galatians chapter 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Colossians chapter 2, 11, in him, Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Paul speaks about a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision today has a meaning for the Christian, but it's not a physical act. It's a spiritual act in which Christ cuts away the old sinful body, the heart, and he makes us new. It's, it's virtually synonymous with the new birth in the New Testament. This is what the Lord promises in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. As he's, thinking, as, as he's talking about this new covenant that he's going to cut with his people, he's going to do it how? 
I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so yes, we see the correspondence between circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New. But it's not through physical lineage. It's through spiritual belief, faith. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Through faith. Paul says that when you come up out of the water, signifying being raised with Christ, this is happening through faith. And so who should be baptized? Those who have repented from their sins and trusted in Christ through faith. So when the shift happens in redemptive history from the old covenant to the new covenant, from circumcision to baptism, there's also a shift from an ethnic people to a spiritual people. Not just males being given the sign of membership in this ethnic people, but all peoples, male and female, being given the sign of membership in the people, namely through baptism. We believe the church should be composed not of believers and their infants, but believers only. And the sign of membership in the new covenant is not a sign for infants, but a sign for believers. Well, so then maybe the question that arises as we continue to work our way through verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Essentially to say, I'm not, writing all of the test, I'm not writing all the sermon down. More was said, and there was a continual pleading to turn from sin, to be redeemed and restored to God. And then verse 41, then, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So the question is, when should one be baptized? I think verse 41 tells us, Sometime after receiving the word. Receiving the word, repenting, and believing. And I want to be clear here. Most New Testament examples, there is almost an immediate connection. And I think it's helpful for us to also just keep in mind that part of the immediacy was also due to the nature of what it meant to follow Christ. Because during Acts, if you remember, Saul is going around ravaging, pulling people from their homes, essentially persecuting. Stephen has just been stoned for his faith. And so to have publicly identified with Christ was to almost kind of put a target on your back so as to say, hey, I belong to him and I'm willing and ready to die for it. And so while there seems to be the precedent... We're not given a specific time frame. So we seek to make the wisest, most biblically informed decision on a matter like this. And we've concluded, because of what it meant to identify publicly with Christ in baptism in Paul's day, target on your back, could be killed. What does it mean today? Applause in the church cost you very little. We think there's prudence. We think there's wisdom. 
in some measure of delay. Not a delay that's meant to withhold, a day that, uh, delay that's meant to instill understanding for both the one being baptized as well as a sense of confidence and affirmation from the church, the one who is doing the baptism. We also believe, as we're going to see in verse 41, there's a connection between identifying with Christ in baptism and belonging to the church. And we believe that some consideration needs to be given. Those that are identifying with Christ in baptism then become members of the church. If you begin to unpack the New Testament, what you find is members of the church aren't just members in name only, they're members in responsibilities. And so wanting to ensure that we're faithfully allowing those that are becoming members to have the competency, the understanding to know how to conduct themselves as members of the household of faith. And that leads me to the last question. Verse 41, whose authority is it to administer baptism? Well, verse 41 ends this way. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Other translations read, and about 3,000 souls were added to their number. To their number. Whose number? What number? Baptism from its inception has been identifying with Christ, entrance into the church. From its inception. Baptized, identified with Christ, added to the number of the church. Identify with Christ, identify with the church. There's always been this connection. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus gives to Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. And essentially Jesus says, hey, the things that are bound up in heaven, make sure they're bound up in earth. And he's talking about the ecclesia. And the things that are loose in heaven, the things that are allowed in heaven, make sure that's allowed and loosed here on earth. And essentially what Jesus says is the church, the gathered church has the authority when they come together, they have the authority to speak and to make declarations on behalf of heaven. And so when the church comes together and they're going to be faithful to exercise these keys, it's not just they come together and they sing. No, they're coming together and they're saying, what would, what would be bound up, kept out of heaven should be bound up, kept out of the church here on earth. And that which is allowed, loose, able to come in and in heaven should be allowed here in the church on earth. And then we saw two chapters later, it's not Peter that's exercising those keys, it's the church exercising those keys. And do you remember how the church is exercising those keys? Do you remember how the church is speaking on behalf of heaven? They're removing a brother in who is unwilling to repent of his sin. He's professing that he belongs to Christ, and yet he's continuing in unrepentant sin. If you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you would find the church in Corinth doing this exact thing. There's a man, everybody knows about it. He's blatantly sinning. He's unwilling to turn from it. And the church at Corinth, Paul's writing to say, you have to put him out. You have to put him out. The purity of the bride of Christ demands it. The holiness of God demands it. The witness of the church demands it. Second Corinthians chapter 2, in talking about that putting out, Paul writes and he says, it was the, 
It was the majority, uh, the voice of the majority. And so what do we see? The church exercising those keys, how? By removing someone. And I think we can safely say that it's the church who has the authority to remove a professing Christian who is living in rebellious, unrepentant sin. It's not merely the authority of one person to stand up and say, hey, I no longer want this guy in the church. Well, I appreciate your opinion, and maybe there's credence to that, but individuals don't get to exercise the keys. Praise be to God. Just think if you got to exercise the keys to the kingdom by yourself. What a mess the kingdom would be. It's also not just parents and families who get to exercise the keys. No, it's this beautiful diversity, this body that comes together, exercising the keys. And because that's what we see, I believe it's safe to conclude that the church has the right to exercise those keys, not just to individuals who are leaving the church, but also to individuals who are coming in. And baptism is the door by which a professing Christian identifies with Christ and identifies with the church. I mean, Matthew 7 warns us against the folly of self-professing Christians. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did, X, Y, Z, I did, I did, I did, I did. And that guy thinks he's okay. but it's the church affirming on behalf of heaven. And so what I understand this to mean is that the family then isn't the instrument given to administer the ordinance because the family hasn't been authorized to speak on behalf of heaven. The local church has been given those keys and the local church has been authorized to speak on behalf of heaven. And so baptisms are to be done under the authority of the church. And when that happens, it makes clear the glories of Christ. So there are so many implications in that. Parachurch ministries, Jordan River cruises, like, praise God for those things. And where there's a clear connection to the local church, praise God for those things. But where there's not, and that's obscured, under whose authority are we relying on? And so this is the beauty of baptism. Baptism is an essential declaration to others that we belong to Christ and we belong to his church. And in the New Testament, being a Christian, being baptized, belonging to a new covenant people, being a member of a local church, they're all linked together. And all of it then serve as the prongs that highlight the worth and the beauty and the magnificence of the diamond who's Christ. And if you tried to just pull one of those things out, well, you don't have to be a Christian, or you don't have to be baptized, or you don't have to be a part of a local church, it would have made no sense. They all belong together. And so this is why baptism is important. And so Covenant Life Church, let's continue to highlight God's good design in our understanding and our practice of baptism. When we ask those that are being baptized, if Jesus is their Savior and Lord, we are celebrating the eternally important truth that they have received Him by faith for their, for their own. When we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are celebrating the involvement of the whole triune Godhead to bring about their conversion and their new relationship to each person in the Trinity. We, when we immerse them in the water, we're celebrating the death and the burial, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. When we raise them up out of the water, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and their participation in it. When they walk out of the baptismal waters, we're celebrating the newness of life that comes and the joy that, in, that it accompanies this life and walk with Christ. Through baptism, the one is united to the many. And when that happens, through ordinary means of grace, the church is strengthened and Christ is glorified. Let's pray. God, as we think about your word and trying to wrap our minds around how when we adhere to your word in baptism, we are showcasing your worth. I pray that we would be a church that does, doesn't merely say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but we know why we're doing it. And I pray that we'd be a church that rightly desires to do it in the way in which your word has so prescribed so that you would receive glory. And so in this moment of silence, would you just show us how we ought to respond? Maybe some in repentance and faith for the first time, others repenting of sin. Maybe Christians not yet baptized. God, I pray that you would move us to obedience. And may we all walk away with a fresh, a renewed sense of this is valuable because your word has said it. And it's meant to display your glory and your worth. So speak to us now, we pray.